Hello, Talk With Me listeners. Hey, today we are recording on a dark and stormy morning. <laughs> so you may hear some rain, you may hear some thunder, or maybe it's calming down now. Who knows? Except it really won't be calming down because of my guest today. <laughs> the shark lady. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you right now that my guest is Jeanette Powers, who is coming to us sitting with me in my dining room around our Victorian house dining room table. And we're going to go who knows where together. She's usually based in Kansas City and then does different performances, lots of places. And you get to experience her through your ears. Thanks to Talk With Me and Jeanette getting together. Thanks for being here. I'm I'm really excited. Thank you so much for having me. I always love coming out and talking to you. And, and listeners, so yeah, we've been talking for a little bit, but now we're going to talk so you can hear us too, right? <laughs> join in, join in. So what was the occasion for us saying, hey, it's time for us to get together and do some recording again? I have a new book coming out and I'm really very excited about it. I turned 40 last year and at that marker for myself, I decided that everything I'd written in the last 20 years was going to never see the light of day again. And that's why I put out Tiny Chasm, my last book, which is the last of everything that was worth looking at for the 20 years previous. And, you know, I think as poets, artists, we can sometimes rest on our laurels and just stay in a safe space. And you you work so hard and you become known for a certain thing. And then it becomes easy to do that and people like it. And so it's this positive or negative feedback loop where everything just works really wonderfully all the time and everything's great and easy. Well, that is kind of boring. Never the way I live. <laughs> ever. <laughs> A person when I was young said, Jeanette, I know you, you're blind flight. And that person is right. All right. Margaret Atwood said, I leap off buildings and build my wings on the way down. All right. And so I just put that tiny chasm out and I closed a chapter. And so then I promised myself to write new and to surprise myself and to be afraid of myself. And what ended up happening was I kind of realized that as personal as much of my work seems on the outset, it's actually very much, my old work is very much about the world. And it's about stories people tell me. And it's about, and I often put that in my own voice because I don't ever want a pointing finger and I see such a mirror in all the relationships with people in the world. And, you know, that's compassion and sympathy and all of that. And so I've put myself in to many stories mm-hmm. and I've told many pe- other people's stories in my work. And I will say, I remember the first time I heard one of your stories, it was at an LFK slam at the Granada and you blew me away. And I probably came up and stammered something to you. I have no idea what I said, but it's like, Wow. <laughs> that's an, that's the bread box poem. That's a very intense poem. And well, that's a good example poem because um, it's about the way that people are abused in family situations, but then don't talk about it. Don't press charges. You know, uncle XYZ did this to niece Q and, you know, everybody kind of keeps uncle separated from the kids, but nobody presses charges. And, you know, for myself, in my own personal experience as a child, when it came out about my molestation, I didn't even know it was an option to press charges. 
I didn't even know that was yeah. a thing. Yeah. And so I'm really, I really believe the millennials are making this huge difference in all of our lives. They're giving us all this new language. They're standing up to bullies, including when that's your family. And they're just, I'm so thankful in so many ways, my son and the young people that I know have saved me and given me this language of healing mm -hmm. that didn't exist when I was in high school. And it's amazing. But so I began writing anew. And then Christmas, I spent Christmas alone last year. And that was a little traumatic for me. And I woke up Christmas Eve morning at 6 a.m. It was a beautiful, beautiful day. Just like this light fog and my dog. And I'm alone and I'm sad. And I'm going to be alone all day. All two days. It's Christmas Eve. And so I just said, well, I got my dog and I never take my phone with me on walks, but this morning I did for some reason. And as I got to the park where I would like to walk my dog and he's off leash, there's nobody out that it's cold. It's Christmas Eve. I, a poem comes to me. And so I get out my phone and I begin voice to texting. And I ended up being out for four hours and wrote half of this don't lose your head book. Oh, wow. And then when I got home and looked at what I'd written, I realized, oh, I've actually written the other half of this book already. And so then over the next three months, I built and designed what is, in some ways, I feel like my first real book, because first it's a complete thing. Uh -huh. It's a concept poetry book. Uh -huh. And it includes a bunch of drawings. So it includes both aspects of my personality with the visual art and the written art. But it's also my real story. I'm finally, after all these years, without any veil of metaphor, without any, you know, technique of slam where I'm like pulling it, you know, slam is like, what do you call it? Uh, in speech, persuasive speech. That's what slam poetry is. It's the persuasive poetry. They're trying to get you to cry. It's none of that. It's just me authentically talking to you. Mm -hmm. So I'm terrified of that. <laughs> but I'm also really excited. Yeah, what a gift. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I feel like it's a, it's a gift to me. And it's a gift to me to be afraid of putting something into the world uh -huh. and afraid of being vulnerable. And I was actually... I like to tell this story. Um, I couldn't decide. And I've talked with my therapist for a month about whether or not to actually release the book. Cause just cause I wrote it doesn't mean it needs to go in the world right. or that it needed to go. Now you have to be ready for that for yeah. sure. Yeah. And my therapist kind of, we worked through it and he gave me permission, but I still wasn't convinced. And then I was talking with this girl who I don't even really know. She just feels like I'm a safe space. So she messages me on Facebook sometimes when she's having trouble and her, uh, baby daddy. They're no longer together, but he's this very abusive person that I also happen to know personally, which is how she came to talk to me at all. Like, what is this person really about? And this person had beaten her up that morning mm. because he'd lost his job in a drunken freak out, which is how he's lost every job he's ever had. And she was messaging me and I'm being supportive. You know, I am so on this girl's side. Mm -hmm. And she, I was like, you need to go to the police. You need to file a report. You can get a restraining order. Here's some, you know, legal things that you can do. Here's, I'm just like, anything I can do to help her. Yeah. And she feels really lost and alone. And she's got a little baby. And I know what that's like to be a single mom. And 
she doesn't have a big support system here because that guy always kind of kept her occluded uh -huh. from the world. And so it's just like, I'm just trying to open the world to her. And she just kept saying, nobody's going to listen to me. Nobody takes me seriously. Everybody always believes him. And that's, I know that's true because he's very charismatic and uh -huh. he's a liar. Uh -huh. And so people are like, well, I don't believe he would give you that black guy. Well, I know for a fact he did because uh -huh. that's what he did to me. Uh -huh. And so she was just kept saying, oh, nobody's going to listen to me. Nobody's going to listen. It's just going to cause more problems. And I thought, I'm putting this book out for her right now. It doesn't have anything to do with her. But I'm going to show up. If I can't speak, uh -huh. who can? Uh -huh. And somebody's got to start speaking as hard as it is, as much as it rocks the boat. Uh -huh. And it does rock the boat. My family's had a very negative response. They haven't read the book. They have only seen my Facebook posts about the book. Uh -huh. And not one of them said, first of all, appropriate response might be, oh my gosh, are you okay? Uh -huh. But it was none of that. It was just your band. You're, this is over. We're not dealing with you anymore. You're a terrible liar. They didn't actually say any of the things I said were lies. They just said I was fake and drama and all of this. And so in some ways I feel like, okay, so I went and said this big thing. I just told the simple truth. And also the truth is I'm not mad at my family. I have forgiveness in my heart for my family. I understand what happened. And if you read the book, each of the individuals who are talked about from my family past, there's also poems in there about their past and their history of trauma and their strength and what they've gone through. And it's really an essay in how we all have strengths and weaknesses, mm -hmm. including myself, who's you know, I'm not the hero of this story by any means. I do bad things too. Mm -hmm. And that's life and that's reality. And why I needed to write this book is because it really puts that perspective on everything. It doesn't just say, I'm a survivor of terrible abuse. Yay, me, high five, which that needs to be out there and people need to get their strength up. And I love that whole part of poetry. But this book is more about illustrating how those cycles of trauma, cycles of abuse, cycles of neglect happen and about how we become blind to the harm done to us because we don't want to not love the people who've harmed us. Mm -hmm. And that's a delicate, intense thing. That's so huge. We don't want to not love those people. And, and to me, it really resonates at this moment because I have recently had this conversation with a man friend of mine about setting boundaries, his deserving respect and, and sort of literally wanting to have his back and be a support in ways as he's making that progress in his own life because he's had a history of being sexually abused by older men and having that trouble of trusting himself and you know, so what do you do about this? And and there was a recent thing that had come up that he'd shared with me and was kind of puzzling over. And I was really strong about, you get to say, I'm done with you. you know? That's what you deserve. You are a beautiful, wonderful person. You do not have to come back and give that person another chance. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. Know? And And I'm saying that in part because it's not, a one gender experience and also because it's real life for too many people. 
So true. Yeah. And people feel silenced. Yes. And people feel that the shame associated with it and people feel like they're bad because something bad happened to them. And so it's all wrapped up in this really deep psychological trauma. And my therapist said something really interesting to me. He's Jungian. And so he's like, I have diagnosis for you today. I said, okay, let's have it. He said, you have a negative mother complex. And I said, okay, well, talk to me about that. And what it is, is that I have sublimated my mother's negative voice, not her positive voice, not the whole being of her essence, but as a child, the part you fear, the negative part, I've sublimated that negative mother into my psyche. Now that lives there, but it's actually me, but it's in that form. And that negative mother voice inside of my head instructs all of my Mm self-harm. And so that revelation of having that fear from the past, actually working in a day-to-day way to sabotage one's own self Mm -hmm. has been revelatory. Mm -hmm. It's been amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot about that permission of forgiving yourself, that permission of making positive boundaries Mm -hmm. and of being able to move forward in a way towards health. And, and part of what you said that prompted me to tell my friend's story a little bit was that, that thing of, Basically, is it okay not to love this other person, you know, because that's part of the trap is I don't want to hurt somebody. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to hurt somebody else. You know, there's that. And, and, and because I'm a big believer, as, as I hear you saying, in not only putting stuff out there, but it's like, so, so then what do I do? You know, you gave some examples of you, you trying to help this person who needed to know what can I do because this is happening and has happened and will happen again. You know, the thing that you said about that sublimated mom messaging, a way that I talk about that with people is we have these false thoughts that we have acquired in our lives. Yes. False thoughts about ourselves in particular. And, and so my image of that is it's like this big balloon and we need to keep poking holes in it till it deflates and it goes away. Mm. And the way that we poke holes in it is with our real truths. Yes. You know, when our thought balloon is, I'm, I'm really a stupid person who always makes mistakes. I always make mistakes. I do so much wrong. Then to say, well, my friend told me that when we were talking about this and, and I was helping her sort of sort through that, that I was one of the most caring people she'd ever met and how much she appreciated that. That's one of my truths, you know? And and so when we let ourselves keep filling ourselves with those real stories Mm -hmm. of ourselves, eventually that other stuff is deflated. It has no meaning. We know it's not there. Yeah. It takes work. I have degrees in physics and math, as I probably mentioned before, and like trying to understand what, motivated me to get degrees in both of those things Yeah. when obviously I'm an artist and that's all I do. When I look back on that, it's exactly that. The truth is so powerful to me. And so in that space of my life, I was looking so hard for the truth. And I was still thinking that that was out in the world somewhere rather than within. And so then I was like, well, science and math, 
That's incontrovertible, darling. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> but I believe that was the truth. is our federal administration. <laughs> facts well, that's different. Facts. <laughs> oh, gosh. I don't even want to think. Math and physics and its ambiguity is so beautiful. I don't even want to think about that. But when you get to the top levels of physics and math, and you start to learn about how numbers emerge from ideas, emerge from the universe. That's a controversy. Where does mathematics emerge from? And then you begin to look at physics and you realize with fractal geometry or um, chaos theory is what they call it. We'd call it nonlinear dynamics is that actually we don't know anything about the world at all. We've just studied these perfect idealized situations that don't really exist in the world. And that kind of math is really great. And that kind of physics builds bridges and put a rover on Mars and you know, we have air travel. And so it's extremely useful, but it is not approaching the truth of how the universe works. It just lets us build stuff. And when you look at that, like we don't even know how ice forms the way it does or why, or why of all things, water, when it freezes, gets lighter. So it goes to the surface and it makes the ice skating rink, right? Whereas everything else, when it freezes, sinks. If that had been everything else, only water gets lighter. If it had been the opposite, where water behaved the same way as everything else, all that ice over hundreds and thousands and millions of years would have sunk and we would have had a frozen wasteland. We wouldn't have any life on Earth at all, most likely. And so just like even basic things, we are just beginning to explore and understand. And that's fascinating to me. Uh There's an endless horizon out there Uh in the world. (laughs) Yeah. And so what do we do with that, Jeanette? Play. Play. <laughs> and as I recall, you play on water too, right? Oh, that's my singular obsession is the river. All the rivers, the creeks. I go back and forth. Do I love the ocean more or the creek more? <laughs> and I love this. The bottom line is I love them all. I go out at least once a week on the river uh-huh. and it's very good. I swam. Actually, I took a gaggle of people a couple weekends ago and I said, hey, who wants to swim three and a half miles on the river? And a bunch of people responded, actually. I was like, right on. And it ended up, it was five miles. I had oh, wow. measured wrong on the Google Maps. It was five miles that a group of like six of That's us swam. It was amazing. And like the, the end snuck up on me. And so half of the group was over on the other side of the river when we needed to get across the river and get up the creek to get back to the car. And I was like, hustle hustle because it takes a long time it's very difficult to swim across a river it is no baloney and there's no way you can just cut straight across you're gonna get shifted down Uh and they probably hit like finally 200 yards past where we were supposed to and so then it's poison ivy snake land in a raised river it's high and it's just quick mud everywhere and so me and my friend Gray, who are the strong swimmers who know the river pretty well, we threw ourselves down with them so we could be with them. And we sent the other people who were, who followed the leader on the river and were on the right side. <laughs> Let that be a lesson to y'all. We just put them on the beach and they sat and waited an hour for the rest of us. And we went and got them. But you literally, like, the only way you can do it is you're like leapfrogging. And you're using your hands and your tip toes to get through this quick mud covered in snakes and poison ivy and submerged trees. <laughs> Everybody was such a trooper. They were so rad. And when we got off the river, 
I just was high-fiving everyone. Yeah. High-fiving. I was like, that's what you're made of. That's yeah. what you do. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's amazing. That is amazing. And I'm assuming that everybody did get to show Everybody <laughs> got to show her. <laughs> it was dicey for a minute. Everybody made it. I was like, I'm going to start bringing a rope with me. <laughs> What will be interesting is the next time he suggests such activity, what the response is. <laughs> Almost uh, everybody so far has said they'll come back. And it was my fault that I didn't yell at them to get over on the other side of the river sooner. I have to take responsibility for that. And um, so also I'll, I'll be the better guide next. <laughs> Here's two lessons. Do not take advice from Jeanette Powers. Ever. <laughs> Also, do not follow me into the woods because I become a feral little animal that is not concerned about anything but direct, immediate pleasure. And there will be a struggle. When did you discover your passion for the river? Well, uh, or for water? It, what happened is a couple years ago, I had a really traumatic thing happen to me in the poetry world, actually, where some poems were deeply misunderstood. And that affected me very badly. It made me really deeply question who I was as an artist, what my point was. In some ways, that moment led to the cutting off of all my old work and the emerging of something new. And um, so I quit drinking. I broke up with my wonderful patient husband. I was like, this has nothing to do with you. It's just I got to go do me. And he was like, this doesn't make sense. And it didn't. But I was in a really bad state. Mm -hmm. I was torn apart. And in a real crisis of individuality. And so I decided what I did mostly was lay and stare at the clouds. I did a lot of nothing, which is hard. And then I was like, I want to swim. And so I went to a pool and it was in the suburbs and it had chlorine and little white children and little white children are awful. They all think they're the police. And so I'm like, playing and I'm not playing right. Oh, you can't, you can't play like that. You can't have that pool noodle. You can't put that person on your shoulders. You can't get on there. I'm like, children's, there's the lifeguard. Let the lifeguard yell. And that was just annoying. And it was chlorine <laughs> and it cost money. And these little children are yelling at me for playing wrong. And so I was like, well, surely I can find somewhere free. So I started going to lakes and I was just like, there's a lake. Uh, pull over and pop a fence with my dog and like go swim in this lake. And I did swim in a few lagoons before I learned the difference. And so don't do that everyone. And then I ended up out at the nudie lake at Camp Gaia. Uh -huh. And that was the best, uh -huh. right? Totally naked town. Everybody needs to be naked under the sun. This uh -huh. is a revelation. Uh -huh. And they have this beautiful lake and they have a, a canoe that you can just use because they're wonderful people who trust you. And so I get in this canoe one day, naked, totally, and I begin canoeing. And it was that moment on the water, in the boat, everything changed in that moment. And so within a couple of weeks, I went out and bought my own kayak. And then I went to all the lakes kayaking. And then I was like trying and trying and trying to find somebody to take me on a river. And on my 39th birthday, this guy was like, his name is Phil Porter, which is cool because porting in the river. But uh, 
he's like, well, I'll take you on the river. And that was where it really took off. And I just, I do the Caw, the Gasconade and the Missouri now. I happily do more as I travel more, but uh-huh. I'm on those all the time. And and then I started swimming the river because uh-huh. just that intimacy with the river, I became, Ejno and I did seven miles on the Gasconade last year of swimming. And we thought Third Creek was sooner than it was, but it was 13 miles. <laughs> And we thought it was six. So this is why you don't follow me into the wilderness. Um, so we had to be rescued. But Ejno is such a weird, I mean, he just like, you can't understand an Ejno. That's just the facts. And so at one point he has taken off his swimming trunks and he's like thinking they're going to float alongside him and be his friend. <laughs> But they got taken in the undertow. And so he lost his swimming trunks. And then we're seven miles into this swim and we are lost. And it is beating sun. We both, we we didn't bring a water. We brought two beers at 9 a.m., right? And it's like 1 1 p.m. now. And so we don't have anything. And so I'm like climbing up and knocking on people's doors, like, help us. And he's like staying in the water because he has no pants. <laughs> so, so this boat pulls up and I was, I'm on the shore and I was like, oh, hi, we need help. We're lost. And the guy's like, well, where's your boat? And we're like, we're swimming. And he goes, what is wrong with you two? I was like, uh, and he goes, you didn't bring a paddle, nothing, not a floaty, nothing. I was like, no. And the guy goes, you're grounded. You're both grounded. <laughs> that ain't no way to be. I was like, really, could you please take us to Third Creek? How far is it? And he goes, girl, Third Creek is six miles from here. <laughs> we're like, please take us there. And he's like, of course. And so I begin climbing onto his boat. He goes up to the dock. And Eshno's still in the water. And he just raises his hand. There's one more thing. <laughs> and the guy turns. And Eshno goes, I'm naked. <laughs> I don't know. So he passes him a towel. And as we're getting off at Third Creek where our car is, he, both the wife and the husband at the same time go, you can keep the towel. <laughs> oh, I love this story. And for those who don't know, you were talking about Ejno Martin. <laughs> You've loved this true story. Go buy some books from EMP. <laughs> I actually wrote that story up as a as a nonfiction piece, uh-huh. and including the losing of the shorts and fancy and pooping on a snail and the curse of the pooped on snail and all of the things. And uh, Jason Reberg is putting out a new thing called the Gasconade Review. Ah, and he picked it up for that because that wonderful. happened in the Gasconade. So that story is going to be in the world. <laughs> that is so cool. That was a great, great day. But traveling with me in the woods is not for the weak of heart. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> I have a friend who does this thing called Dirty Girl Adventures. And... She cannot top you in what she offers. There's no way. (laughs) (laughs) 
Wow. I think we're going to just take our little break here. Okay. Hear from a couple of the businesses that sponsor LawrenceHits.com. Give people some time to savor that scene that they just imagined. There's many <laughs> scenes of that river swimming story. Enjoy that, folks. And, and I thank Daniel Smith, who produces the show, for letting you hear it. Um, yay, Daniel. And we'll be right back with more Talk With Me with Jeanette Powers. And who knows where we'll go next. So, listeners, welcome back to Talk With Me. This is Marsha Epstein with Jeanette Powers. Um, stories, stories, stories. Wow. <laughs> How could anybody not want to just give you a mic and just let you go? <laughs> All my life, people, it, like, since I'm old, it was before reality television. All my life, people have been like, oh, my God, you need your own reality TV show. <laughs> I'm like, yes, with a cadre of lawyers. Because if you put me on with, and especially if Ejno joined in, me and Ejno, reality TV, following us around. You know, he went on tour this summer, and the first stop they did is at Iowa State, which is like the the creative writing program or whatever. I don't follow academia, so I don't know. But apparently that's true. Um, him and his poets he was on tour with found out that on the first day of their tour that there was this uh, like agent symposium where all of the students could meet agents and learn about how to. So they went and protested the agent <laughs> symposium and had all these like handmade signs that were like, fuck them, fuck your parents paying for your college education. Come join us. We're leaving on tour right now. <laughs> And from having talked to us a little bit about his academic career, I think there's some real personal stuff behind that. <laughs> I think you nailed it right there. You got it. You got it. In the small world coincidence thing, the first time Esme and I were talking on radio, and it might have been before or after, I don't remember, we talked a little bit about Iowa, and he mentioned this person who was his arch nemesis, uh -huh. and I said, Arna Hemingway, I know Arna, Arna, <laughs> his dad was the chancellor at the University of Kansas, and his brother Zach is my son's best friend since sixth grade. <laughs> I friended Arna Hemingway on Facebook just to make Ejno upset. I'm so sure Arna has no idea who I am. But everyone's well just read a face. Oh, did you see Arna's got some new work published? And Ejno's just glowering. I love that. I love that. Yes. Well, like you earlier, you said, what do you do about everything? And I want to, that was about the chaos of the universe. But also about the chaos of life. Yes. You play. That's my firm belief. You play. And uh -huh. I write a lot of heavy work. And my art is really heavy. But my personal life, I am a barrel of giggles all of the time. I am just running around, goofing off. And just that's it. Play. And so that's what I wish everybody would do a little bit more. Yes. It's so good. Go to a swing set. Swings are <laughs> awesome. And they're a workout. Like, we're all old here. Your arms will be tired from a swing. That's how far removed we are from playing. <laughs> but you who swims miles and miles in the river. Oh, man, I'm still oh, so weak. I don't know how these people get strong. <laughs> I feel like I do a lot of stuff and I am still not strong. You strong people, props. <laughs> and everybody made it on the river. 
everybody made it. So people, you can do more than you think you can. <laughs> Which is true in life in general. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So let's get back to the book a little okay. bit because this is about you and your life and putting that out in the world. And it's about inspiration. It's about vulnerability. Mm -hmm. It's about strength. It's about lots of things. And and you said that early on that that pretty much you you are moving past the first twenty years of your art career and and starting new. And this is this is that first out in the world yes. piece about that. Yes. Right? Yeah. So uh, I guess loosely, the book is called "Don't Lose Your Head." And. What happened is after I got back from sabbatical last year, I was gone for nine weeks on writing sabbaticals, which was an immense joy. And I wrote a lot during that time, but, and half of this book ended up being written during that time. But then I came home, I have an empty house. It's empty of everything. There's like a mattress on the floor and the dog and me and a desk. And it was, that was wonderful. And it was a very, very silent, quiet space that I had. And I came back and I'm sitting in the bathtub one day and I'm reading Toni Morrison jazz. And actually the quote is in the beginning of the book. I'm reading along and this character is um, an older man whose father had killed himself. And the narrator is really strange in that book, but the narrator says about the man, quote, the children of suicides are hard to please and quick to believe no one loves them because they are not really here. Wow. And I mean, it was as though just, you know, I'm a crystal glass and Tony's voice just burst me. And it was not like sadness. It was because I come to realize that I have believed, well, that's not the right word. I have never known how my father really died. He was four when I died. I know it was a car wreck, but I also know nobody really ever talked about it. And I also know that anytime I talked about it, everybody became very upset. And I came to learn as a child to not talk about it. This is a thing to not talk about. And then a person in my life told me that he had killed himself. I was probably like eight and he died when I was four, maybe seven or eight. So I remember sitting with that and thinking, this is why nobody talks about it. He killed himself. Didn't believe that at the same time. And I was kind of a neglected child. I spent a lot of time alone. I didn't have a lot of supervision lot with my family ever. They just were off for whatever reason. And so I kind of, what I'm learning is that I just repressed all that. I repressed the death of my father and the loss of my father. And there would be these moments that I wished for him because he was this wonderful artist and he, you know, he never had a job in his life. He left home at like 13 and traveled with his best friend and they just, you know, made their money off of making art. To this day, the best friend is one of the most world-renowned glassblowers in existence. Like he's literally world famous in that work in that glassblowing world, lamp working. And my father was on that path to be with him. And so I've felt a loss that way and like lo losing an artistic mentor. But you know, that's really 
that's not the truth. And when I read that by Toni Morrison, and that's me, hard to please believe I'm not here. I really suffer with dissociation a lot. And like once for six months, I believed I was dead, literally. I mean, mental illness can be really powerful. And I don't mean to make light of that time, but I believed I was dead for six months. That is a powerful force throughout my entire life. And when I read that, I was like, I have to know the truth. I have to know the truth. I've never asked the truth. And so I called this best friend of my dad's. And because the family, I feel like, has an interest in spinning things a certain way or an interest in maintaining a set story, maybe. I just didn't trust them as much. Not that I think they have bad intentions, but just I wanted the best friend. And we have a relationship. So I messaged him on Facebook. I said, I don't, I don't know how my dad died. I need you to tell me. And he goes, call me. So actually he called me, whatever. And he just says, opening lines, Jeanette, you're a grown ass woman and you're ready to hear the truth. And I'm like, boom. And just start to cry. Okay. And so it, it takes, a, he's a great storyteller. It takes him a very long time to tell the story. And he tells the story about how wonderful my dad was and all these details about his life and everything. And then tells the story of every day of the week leading up to the day my dad died because they had been together in Texas. My dad came back up the next till Sunday, the Monday, he, my dad comes back up and he uh, has a fiance. That's not my mom. And they get in the car 10 AM Monday morning because they're like celebrating, seeing each other again, whatever. And so what my father's best friend told me is that they were blowing lines of Coke while they were driving. And my dad was this notorious, terrible driver with, you know, just like really reckless, really reckless all the time, always crashing cars and stuff like that, thinking it was funny. And so she cuts up some lines of Coke on a mirror passes them to him as he's driving this sports car through a curvy area next to a lake, Shawnee Mission Lake, as a matter of fact. And he leans down to hit the line of Coke and bumps the wheel. It's a convertible. She's wearing a seatbelt. He's not. And I'm just going to be factually graphic here. So trigger warning for those of you who are uh, triggered by death. The car flips because he jerks the wheel inadvertently and because he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, he was decapitated on the pavement. Now this fiance lives, she's wearing her seatbelt. Mm -hmm. The car flips and I don't know what really happened after that. He might've said something on the phone, but he also said to me, a lot of people, you know, like if somebody's drunk driving and they wreck. A lot of people say that's kind of like a suicide because they shouldn't have been drunk driving. So I guess there was a lot of talk around the, when my father died that he was at fault because he was doing drugs and being reckless. And so I think that, you know, in the best case world, this person who said my dad committed suicide, I think maybe they had heard that side of things. And there's a lot of very religious people who would look down on my father in a lot of ways. He was an atheist. You know, he was obviously doing a lot of drugs. He abandoned his family at a young age. It was a very abusive family. And so if in the best case scenario, she had just heard that. In the worst case scenario and how I remember it is I was, I was a 
a jerk of a kid because nobody took care of me and I didn't trust adults. And so I was a jerk to adults all the time. And I had said, I'd mouthed off to her and she retorted with, well, at least my kid's dad didn't kill themselves. And so, but you know, memories get fuzzy and I would never hold that against her. You know, it could be, memories are just weird, but it doesn't really matter the facts of how that happened or what was said. That was in my mind for 36 years. Mm -hmm. And so I called him and found out the truth. And that was a huge relief because there is a lot of suicides in my father's side of the family. And it led to don't lose your head. And so there's two aspects, right? But the power of that statement, because it's about keeping your cool Mm -hmm. and it's about survival Mm -hmm. and it's about, um, being able to stay focused through traumatic events. Mm -hmm. And so then there's two basic parts to the book. There's a set of poems called the decapitation, which are what I wrote on that Christmas Eve morning. And there's the set of poems called things you don't know about me, which I wrote on sabbatical and continue to write because I find a lot of power in that particular idea. And then because the book is so heavy, I started putting in like little interstitials, which are wonderful. And I can't wait for everyone to get (laughs) to them because they're unusual. But they also reflect back on my growing up. And so then as the book begins to emerge, it's kind of, I didn't want to name my mom's name, my dad's name, uh, my ex-husband's name. Um my friend Mary's name, you know, characters from my real life that end up. And so I just, I, I like to not think as I create. And so I called my father, Samson, that made my mother Delilah. There's that cutting off of the hair and losing the power. So that's perfect. And then I've come to the point where I need to name myself. And I just was like, Dorothy, Kansas, Dorothy Gale, the tornado of my life. And what's funny is I absolutely hate the wizard of Oz. (laughs) I hate it with all of my heart. And so I named my ex-husband the wizard and there's a scarecrow in there. And I realized that that subconscious immediate choice was because I hate to face that. It's hard for me to face all that. It's hard for me to process through what happened. It's hard for me to see that nobody meant harm, but so much harm was caused. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways the book is, very fact. It's not, you know, it's not this melodrama. It's all kind of factually given a lot of the, you know, really terrible things that have happened, but it's factually given. And then the things you don't know about me are my responses to it. And then as I kept working on it, I started to realize these things about the wizard of Oz that people never question, like what happened to Dorothy's parents? Mm-hmm. Only Dorothy knows. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, It's Dorothy talking about what happened Mm -hmm. and this metaphor that we all can carry because only I know what happened to my parents. Uh And so just, it all came together in this really interesting way. And what was the question? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the next question is, would you share something? Okay. I have pulled a couple out. Um, ones that I haven't read yet. I've been practicing a little bit on reading for the show that comes out on the 12th. 
Uh, so this is decapitation Dorothy. Dorothy followed in both her parents' footsteps. One by being bright and willful and wild, two by falling down into a bottle of whiskey or Bailey's or opium or whatever else went her way. Of course, she had daddy issues. Question, did she marry a man 25 years her senior who knocked her head into the pavement ground, turned her head over heels on a daily basis, who worked to erase her mind because that was the only way he could keep someone as fine as her around? He did have standards, you know. It's no good to crush something useless under your boot heel. If you're brilliant, you want to destroy something beautiful. So I feel I feel like my first marriage, which was to a person who has deep psychological issues, uh, was me losing my head. That's when I, and it ended in this deep, deep, horrifying depression. That was when I woke up. I was just like, wow, this is not me. Who am I? Mm -hmm. And so I was able to get out of that situation. And it's just really pretty much been uphill since then, but not without struggle for sure. Mm -hmm. So. Um, then the next one is the things you don't know about me. This one is a special one because a lot of this has to do with my relationship with my mother. So this one's called things mom doesn't know about me. It's called fever. In order for mother to know me first, one must sit in the silent of early dawn and be so, so still. So still the lizards run over one's toes and the armadillos trundle past in ignorance of one's could be threatening and snootily forage. And mother must stare right where one already knows the sun will break over the black trees. And mother must also stare there into the rising sun until it seemingly blinds one and one must lose one's mind and stay there in the fire of the star until the dew is dry and the bright orb is high. For one who is my mother to know me, mother must be told one's first memory of her. Mother fighting with one's sister's father, and one must know that preschooler in a mork hat made a promise to oneself that day that one has felt the undercurrent of in every day after. One promised oneself that the world must be bigger than this small house, and whatever happened, one would never be like mother. Mother should be reminded one taught oneself to read before one ever darkened the bell of a classroom door. And mother should know one felt more at home there. In order for mother to know me, one must, one must remember that mother is best in pain and reliable most when all of the houses have been reduced to rubble and there is a funeral, a bedpan, a climate of catastrophe, a duty. Mother doesn't know how to live in joy. One must remember how mother put out the fire. One's brother started in the closet where he starved. How mother buried her two sugar-sick sisters, one young, but one after such long illness. Remember how mother shouldered the burden of that sister far past recognition of self, dog, bug, or sister. One must remember the divorces, the broken bones, the hospitals, and the carrying of my body which one then believed to be dead. And how when one was resurrected, that one loved mother. How when the fever broke, one called out for her. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. 
you know, my family had a very bad reaction, I said to this, and that's what they don't hear. They heard one story about how my mom was too drunk to enroll me in the fourth grade, which is a true story. I'm not mad. It's a true story. It happened. And it seems like it's so unforgivable to tell that story. As if we don't all have times we've done terrible things. As if the people around who loved us didn't have to figure out a way to keep loving us through that. Mm -hmm. As if people haven't had to figure out how to keep loving me. Mm -hmm. And I wish they could hear the whole story. Mm -hmm. I wish they would open up enough to let me tell the whole story. And that poem is a perfect example of how... I came through that. Yeah. And my mother is best in tragedy. If something really terrible happens, that girl is there uh-huh. and supporting you and making sure you get through. Uh-huh. But she really just doesn't know how to be happy. Uh-huh. So in a happy situation, in, you know, at, at a wedding or something, she's really lost. She feels like she doesn't have anything to offer. So anyways. And I hear you speaking with love and forgiveness and acceptance, all those wonderful things. And, and in the back of my mind, there's also another writer who I think of, Anne Lamott, who has a little quote that's something to the extent of, if people wanted you to say nicer things about them, they should have behaved better. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my therapist always says, Jeanette, you make too many excuses for people. And I'll wear that. I'll wear that albatross if I have to. And that is, that is a tendency for people who've had people who they love to betray them. Yeah. And what I've learned, what I've learned is about setting boundaries mm-hmm. and sometimes about allowing them to set boundaries. That's mm-hmm. what it's really been with my family. They, for a long time, my mother has disowned me multiple, multiple, multiple times. And for a long time, I just fought and fought and fought and said, you can't take my family away from me. I deserve a family. I get to have a family and fought my way back into that relationship. Mm-hmm. And my mother's kind of the matriarch of the whole family. And so my access to her determines my access to the whole family. Mm-hmm. And, but this time my son came out as transgender and that caused a whole new set of problems. And my mother's been unkind to my son a number of times. And that was when I was like, okay, they get to set the boundaries. They've been telling me for years where the boundaries are, which is stay away. And at that point, somebody has got to be on my son's side and I'm on my son's side. And that meant changing how I behaved for my whole life. Because I'm always, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Anything for love, anything for love, it's okay. And, but at that point I was like, actually, not anything for love. Oh, Mm -hmm. you've met my boundary. Here it is. Mm -hmm. And so I chose my son 100% in that. We have, he's wonderful. We have a great relationship. He turned 19 on Sunday. Uh, And uh, so it's kind of in a weird way, it's almost this relief because all this time I've struggled and felt like I wasn't seen and felt like I had to hide myself in order to have a family. And with the book coming out and them being like, you're dead to me. I'm like, well, okay. All right. Okay. This is the new facts. Uh-huh. Let's, let's see what's next. Uh-huh. And I've got Ejno, I've got the dog, I've got my son, I've got wonderful arts community that's so supportive and you see being supportive of so many people. Mm-hmm. And so there we are. Yeah. And as you say that you are also a hub in that part of the art community. You are also one who's bringing people together on important projects. I mean, I love the 
the anthology things that you've done. I love those you mentioned some of those? I've worked on a number of anthologies. The first was Prompts, a spontaneous anthology. That was the Poets of Poetic Underground coming together to write new poems together. It's amazing. The second was Desolate Country because I'm a workaholic. And so when Trump got elected, I was blown away. And uh, what can I do? And I said, well, I can make people's voices heard. Mm -hmm. And so that released a week before his inauguration. So that was very fast to get together. Two months, 50 poems. And then I staged this. And Nationwide Poets, too. I wanted it beyond Kansas City. And um, then I staged on Friday the 13th of January, a week before the inauguration. I staged this huge social marketing campaign. And so we got to the front page of Amazon's hot new bestsellers on poetry. We got to number one on poetry anthologies. We're still in the top 20 of that. And number one with, I think, grief and trauma was the other listing that it was under. And we're still on the top 20 page on that. So that was an amazing, so we sold hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies. And there was no profit on that book. We, I felt it would be inappropriate to make any kind of profit off of that. And also if it's a four or $5 book, more people can buy it. Uh So, and then the last anthology I did was uh, with Spartan press on um, finding Zen in Cowtown, 30 poems about Kansas city. And John Bidwell has the cover art on that. It's city cityscapes skylines of Kansas city with big sky. Oh, it's just, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And little teaser here, John Bidwell is going to be a guest on the oh, wonderful. show in a couple weeks. Thanks to Brandon Whitehead. Yes, he's written some really interesting new books. I'll look forward to that cool. episode. Cool, cool. So three, is there one percolating at this point? I don't have an anthology in the works. What I'm really working on right now, Ejno and I joined forces on EMP Books, which is his press, and he allowed me to come in as an acquisitions editor. And so um, we do zine cons. We'll probably do like four zine fests next year and underground lit fairs and stuff like that. And so I am currently just producing an immense amount of zines. I think I have 10 zines coming out this month. Wow. Because Kansas City Zine Fest is August. So we want to have our inventory. Uh And then we have all the books Ejno's already made. And then we're making a couple new books. Jason Prue has a new book coming out with us. In August, Zofia McDougall has a new book coming out with us in August. Working on a couple more that way. And but realistically, EMP is gonna have, I wanna have 35 books under our imprint by the right. time we hit Zine Fest. But some of those are zines, you know, they're yeah. just little things you print out on your yeah. computer old school. And one of the things I've been doing is taking Facebook posts that are really amazing and long and thought out. Uh-huh. And I just like hit up that person like, Hey, can I publish your Facebook post as a zine? Uh And then just mail them 15 free copies. And there we have cool stuff. I call it, uh, you said it (laughs) because I'm just literally like, Oh, I like that. We're putting it in print. (laughs) So that's been really fun. That's what I've been working on lately. Yeah. And you have a release coming up. Let's say the details about that. Um, the release for don't lose your head is July 12th. The show doors at set Uptown Arts Bar. That's uh, 3611 Broadway, KC Mo. And the release is scheduled for 7 to 9. and But the show will be 7.30 to 8.30. And I have a really interesting thing planned. If I can put it together fast enough, it's going to be stunning. 
either way, it'll be reading the poems and telling stories about my real life. And like, I'm, it's going to be vulnerable, real Jeanette on stage, which is interesting. But I have an interesting performance design I hope to get set up. And I'm also going to have my first zine, my first art zine available that day. Nobody's, I haven't told anybody this yet, but it's called Dive. And it's a zine from that time period where I thought I was dead. And so it's kind of like a visual essay into that mindset. And in a lot of ways, it belongs with this Don't Lose Your Head book because it was kind of the precursor. They, I really feel they go hand in hand. They kind of belong together. So I pushed really hard to get that produced and out. And it'll also be available on the 12th. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And you, did you recharge with those sabbaticals, Italy and elsewhere? Unreal. Yeah. Like in some ways, I feel like this entitlement that <laughs> I should be allowed to just write all the time uh-huh. and have somebody else pay all my bills and somebody else take care of me all the time. Like it, yeah. Because I wrote, well, I wrote five books while I was there. Wow. I wrote another one after I got back and I wrote another one in April and that one's called um, America stabbed James T. Kirk in the arm with a number two pencil. (laughs) I love that book. I hope to have it out next April. It's going to be something really special, but it's written, it's done. Uh And um, it absolutely showed me that I hadn't even really begun to investigate everything I have to say. It like earlier I said the horizon is limitless. I believe that with my full heart. There is never an end to what to be curious about and uh-huh. what you have to offer in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're living it. And you're doing things when you started you you with Spartan Press Pop Poetry, nobody can do twelve books. A I, year. Know. <laughs> I know. They're on like well, I Jason went on his own. Uh, in January of this year. And he's continued that and expanded the number of books he's doing. And what does that make it like 30? Oh, the last book, Frederick Sims, huge success, wonderful poet. Um, That was book 30. So that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So you show that, yes, you can, (laughs) whether it's swimming the river or creating works. Yes. I'm really indomitable indefatigable is there you that go. That's, a good one. that's a very good one yeah yeah very live learning doing caring reconsidering you know all that yeah. stuff nothing stagnant about Jeanette Powell <laughs> that's real I do have my fallow times I allow the fa- I call it fallow not stagnant fallow is when a field is being left alone so that the worms can do their duty of getting all yeah. the nutrients back in. And I like that. I think everybody needs that. Yeah. And as soon as that happens to me again, I'll be fine with that. <laughs> <laughs> Bring it on. She oh, but says. I want to say my friend, Nate Bogart said something the other day. I really relate to somebody asked him, how do you do everything you do? It's so amazing. And he just turns and he goes, I'm very excitable. I mean, I just really get excited about a lot of stuff. And I was like, yes, that me, that yes, me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeanette. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you, listeners. I know that you have been delighted, touched, inspired, and keep up that 
energy that you heard from Jeanette. Borrow some of that if you need. Please. Get yourself out <laughs> in the world doing more and laughing and having fun and playing and creating and all that good stuff. And so long, Jordan.